0: Good evening, everyone. Can, can you hear me at the back? Yep. Great. Okay, well, uh, it's uh, very nice to see a uh, good turnout on a cold winter evening like this, and a warm welcome to this uh, lecture sponsored by the International History Department. Uh, and this is not just any lecture, this is an inaugural lecture, so it's a special evening. Um, It's a great pleasure to be able to chair the session (coughs) tonight. My name's David Stevenson, and our speaker tonight, who I'll be introducing in a moment, is is Professor Alan Sken. Now, I want to make a few introductory remarks. The lecture will be in the usual format. We'll be having the lecture, and then there'll be plenty of opportunity for question and answer after that. Uh, And we'll be running through to about quarter to eight or eight o'clock. If there is a fire or emergency, the exits are at the back. And the stewards there will, 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 I hope, direct you to them, but naturally we're hoping that nothing of that kind will happen. Um, Now, a few words about Alan before we begin. Alan has become a kind of departmental institution, and I say that, I hope, in the best and kindest sense. As I remember, when I first came to the department, many years ago, and I'm not going to say how many years ago, Alan welcomed me, as he's welcomed many other lecturers and members of staff and colleagues since then. So we all remember Alan as being the kind of social soul of the department for staff but also for students. And I know he's held in a lot of affection by his former students and it's a great pleasure to see so many of them turning out to see him this evening. Um, Alan, I think, I've just checked with him, it's true, he has never actually missed a departmental Cumberland Lodge weekend which is an extraordinary achievement and a sort of testimony to the... uh, devotion to the to dedication that he attributes to that side of the department but what I also want to say is to stress his importance his contribution as a historian and what he brings to this professorship both in kind of depth of expertise and in breadth so depth first and foremost he's a, an expert I think one of the leading international experts on the Habsburg monarchy on the Austrian Empire and Austria-Hungary in the 19th century On that subject, he's published lots of articles and four major books, starting with his first book on Rudetsky and the Suppression of the Revolutions of 1848-49, then a very well-received and much translated book and influential book on the decline and fall of the Habsburg monarchy, and then leading on to biographies of Metternich and most recently of Rudetsky. And if there's a kind of theme running through all of that work, it's been to stress the importance to rehabilitate the significance of an unjustly neglected theme of the Habsburg monarchy and its contribution to and importance in European history and to stress also its kind of liveliness and importance that it wasn't, Alan argues, in decline and its fall came as a result of the First World War rather than because of inherent kind of disintegrating tendencies. I think I've got that right. Good. So first and foremost, then, his role as Austria-Hungary. When I say first and foremost, almost equally striking is, I think is his very remarkable breadth as a historian and the sheer extent of his expertise as looking at the CV this afternoon and the number of courses and the width of topics on which he's taught um, which puts I think all the rest of us to shame as he's reminded me he's the only member of the department who can teach on ancient and medieval and modern history and has taught also on American and European as well as on British history. So he's taught very widely, not just on political history, but on a much more kind of um, experimental, adventurous subjects, in the history of race, sex, and slavery. More recently, on Western intellectuals and the challenge of totalitarianism. So, whatever your kind of history, I think Alan can teach it. Um, whatever your subject area, whatever the period of history, whatever the geographical area, Alan can teach it and can teach, and also very interestingly and say important and right important and knowledgeable and controversial and thought-provoking things about it. Um, and if one looks at the CV, it's not just in addition to the works on the on Austria-Hungary and Habsburg monarchy. Um, there was also a pioneering, and I think, very important uh, first stab, really, at the contemporary history of Britain since 1945, books on the decline and fall, if that's what it was, or decline at any rate of Britain down to the 1970s, He's now working, I know, on a history of post-1945 Europe. That leads into the theme of tonight's lecture. He's not talking about the Habsburg monarchy. He's talking uh, in a, doing a kind of very ambitious and broad comparative perspective uh, on a topic of uh, very considerable and significant interest. Frederick the Great, Napoleon and Abraham Lincoln, what makes a national icon. So Alan, the floor is yours. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Oh, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Uh, this may be a bit of a long lecture, <laughs> there's a lot in it, uh, in terms of Frederick the Great, Napoleon and Abraham Lincoln. I could probably give a series of lectures in each of them, but uh, you're getting them all in one. So forgive me if it's not the shortest of lectures, but I hope it will be in the time space allotted. Um, this year is the 300th anniversary of the birth of Frederick the Great. It's also the 200th anniversary of Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Last year was the 150th anniversary of the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War, and 210, of course, was the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's election to the presidency. Now, all these anniversaries caused me to reflect on the historic figures involved and to think about why we have such a fascination with the big names of history. For according to several authorities, their lives and reputations are still of great present relevance. In America, for example, there's been a huge outpouring of books on the coming of the Civil War and the life and career of Abraham Lincoln. One reverently refers to him as the Redeemer President. Another, called Father Abraham, makes the same point. Quote, It could be said that he saved our nation's soul. He was an indispensable genius, such as no other figure in our past. And he's generally still seen today as the man who saved the Union and abolished slavery. Frederick the Great, of course, saved nobody's soul and his reputation according to Oliver Macdonald, or Giles Macdonald rather, <coughs> didn't survive the Second World War. But this is untrue. Professor Johannes Kunisch, who published a biography of Frederick in 2004, said last year in an interview to Spiegel quote, we don't have many princes of this caliber in our history. Frederick stands for a powerful modernizing influence which has to continue if we want to have an effective professional system of government. He dismissed any suggestion that Frederick had been a warmonger or that if he were alive today, he would have been put up in front of the International Criminal Court as a war criminal. His attack on Silesia, according to the attack in 1740, had been a positive event within the cultural context and the aristocratic values of the time. He had perhaps just a tinge, disturbingly, there is a need in Germany to maintain a heroic picture of Frederick, That is evident today among army officers. I experienced it a short while ago when I was giving a lecture to the leadership academy of the Bundeswehr in Hamburg. Well, I suppose that's all right then. But it should be added that right through the period from 1945, uh, there have been heroic efforts in Germany to spare Frederick's reputation. After the war, West Germany's leading historians, Friedrich Meinecke and Gerhard Ritter, both of whom wrote famous books explaining uh, the Nazi catastrophe, took the view that Frederick represented moral values and limited warfare. Ritter in particular explained that Nazi barbarism had its roots not in Prussian history, but in the mass democracy unleashed by the French Revolution. Militarism, he said, had nothing to do with the amount of money spent by the state on the army or even with the infusion of military values uh, into general social life. It had to do instead with the brutality of democratic regimes uh, in wartime. And according to Ritter, quote, militarism never ever affected Germany. Hans Rothfels, another leading historian in his work on the German Resistance, made the same point. Modern mass civilization generates uh, a reservoir of evil forces whose release spells naked barbarism. What triumphed in 1933, therefore, was the dark forces forming the sediment of every modern society. The aristocratic German officer corps had tried to prevent these dark forces infecting Germany, but Nazism had been too popular aristocratic, pre-modern Frederick, therefore, could be safely resurrected after 1945 as a role model. And this allowed D.B. Horn, for example, to comment in 1967 that in Germany, there was still, quite a tendency to identify Frederick as a supreme representative of genuine Prussian ideals and to judge later regimes by his basic ideas of state and society. Frederick, of course, was ceremoniously reburied on the 17th of August 1991, the year of German reunification in a vault at Sanssouci in the presence of Chancellor Kohl and an honor guard of the Bundeswehr. Long before that, these Germans had already restored Rauch's equestrian statue of him to Unter den Linden, and the West Germans in 81 had held a retrospective of him in the Gropius Bar. Professor Kunisch is correct, therefore, when he states that contemporary Germany sees Frederick's legacy as one of continuing uh, national relevance. And even the former East German villages of Klosterzinn and the whose statue of Frederick had been blown to bits by the communists in 1948, kept the pieces of the statue and once they were reunified, stuck them all together again and put it up in the middle of the village square. Well I don't have much desire to say much about the contemporary significance to France of the Emperor Napoleon, the obsession of him uh, of politi- with him of politicians such as Nicolas Sarkozy, Napoleon Le Petit, if there ever was one, and Dominique de Velpin speaks volumes. And according to the Doyen of French historians of Napoleon, Professor Jean Toulard, France today is experiencing, quote, a national reflex to return to the time when France was the strongest nation in Europe. The most amusing contemporary illustration of the continuing allure of Napoleon is perhaps the present effort to break the spell of that cultural Chernobyl erected in 1992 called Disneyland Paris. Uh, Yves Yego, the mayor of Montereau, scene of Napoleon's last victory, is now spending 200 million euros, not very far uh, from Disneyland, to build a rival attraction, and this is to be called Napoleon Land. And according to Christian Montet, the head of the French tourist agency Atou France, he says, only Napoleon as the statue to take on Mickey Mouse. So uh, there you have it. Does the general public care very much about national icons or are they important to only to historians? Well, large, scale, large sales of history books and biographies suggest they do. History matters for them because people have to make sense of the national past just as they have to make sense of their own lives. We're not naturally existentialists. We don't assume that we are temporary inhabitants of an irrational and absurd universe and that only our own actions give meaning to our lives. We know we have a past, and what happened in it explains why we're in our present situation. And we're all too well aware uh, that actions of others have helped shape our past and present and will help shape our future. Indeed, any society without a knowledge of its past, would be like an amnesiac, and amnesiacs are deeply troubled people. Still, when we remember our past, we tend to remember the high spots and the low ones, the moments that cast the greatest light on the rest of our lives and give meaning to them. These are the moments that tell us something essential about our natures. They're the highlights of our grand or petty narratives of our existence. Well, so too, I think, with nations. When we try to make sense of national past, we again concentrate on episodes of existential crisis to illuminate the grand narratives of our national past. And inevitably, we focus on the individuals associated with these episodes. <coughs> and the names of these heroic individuals of great figures are known, even to the masses, who can't avoid the monuments statues, avenues, metros, airports, and railway stations, and yes, even theme parks, uh, which uh, commemorate them. Well, these are the national icons I want to talk about tonight. (coughs) In a democratic age, of, of course, the grand narratives of history have to reflect the prevailing ethos. This makes the history of some countries rather problematical. Germany's existential crisis, for example, can hardly be used to turn, I don't know, Hitler or the Kaiser uh, into national icons. Indeed, what can Germans make of their past? In the 19th century, Teuschke, Deuss, and Zubel, and others excised the history of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation under the Habsburgs from German history, which they seemed to limit to the and followed by the rise of Prussia as part of God's plan to unify Germany. The records of the Second and Third Reichs, however, later left German historians with a problem. History seemed to have played a nasty trick in them. Thus, if at the end of the 18th century there was no Germany and no German nationalism, two centuries later, towards the end of the 20th, the situation was much the same. The 1896 Historikerstreit, or Historians' Dispute, Should Germans as divided as ever over their past? Should they think of themselves as belonging to a civilized nation which had only temporarily entered the abyss? Or should they have the word Auschwitz branded on their foreheads forever? Should they relativize their past or believe that it only started in 1949? Was their patriotism to be national or merely constitutional? The 1986 German Historians Convention at Trier applauded a speaker who said that nobody knew what German history was and it would be much better to discuss the Chinese. (laughs) Then came reunification in 1989. Almost everyone in Germany under the age of 40 seemed to be opposed to it. So too were left-wing socialists and the Greens. Ostpolitik, the Eastern policy of Willy Brandt and his successors, had turned East Germany into a friendly, neighbouring state like Austria or Switzerland. The original aim of the policy, to create what Brandt called a feeling of zusammengehörigkeit, or a feeling of shared national belonging, had backfired spectacularly. Germany, therefore, became a split not merely between German Germans and non-German Germans German Germans who believed in a national past and non-German Germans who didn't to use the vocabulary of one American political scientist but it was also now split between Aussies and Vessies as a result it became even more difficult to construct a truly national grand narrative of the past instead many Germans found it easier to believe in a united Europe as a Nertsatz Vaterland Although, sadly, God looks as if he may have yet another joke or a trick up his sleeve with regard to Europe. But given Austria's permanent exclusion from Germany, it remains possible for Germans to revisit an earlier period of history and admire the career of a a German who was unconnected with the Nazis and who actually defeated his enemies, namely Frederick the Great. France doesn't have a settled grand narrative either. Until 1939, uh, she had two. One was that of the left and of the Republicans. This was predicated on the revolution of 1789 and the rights of man. Until then, France indeed had been a major power, but it was only by revolution that the sins of feudalism had been overcome and France was able to give the world civil rights, liberty, equality, fraternity. And then, as La Grande Nation, she had liberated the rest of Europe and set an example to the world. Until 1945, there was, of course, a competing grand narrative, and that was the grand narrative of Charles Maurras and Action Française. This held that France had been the creation of her kings, and that their glorious achievement, hand in hand with the Catholic Church, had been destroyed by the diabolic doctrines of the Enlightenment and by the revolution. Uh, the revolution being seen as the work of the four confederates of anti-France, the Jews, Protestants, Freemasons, and foreigners. Moras advocated the restoration of an Ancien regime kind of monarchy, and today it's incredible how influential his views were. The trouble was that he backed Pétain and Vichy and was imprisoned for treason after the war, so the grand rallied narrative of the right disappeared. In any case, the right could never capture the majority of French minds for the simple reason that the record of the left in the defence of France was simply too strong. It was gone after all, who led the resistance of Prussia in 1870-71. It was the Third Republic which had defeated Germany in the First World War and regained Alsace-Lorraine. And it was the Communists who had led the domestic resistance to the Nazis during the Second World War. Indeed, after 1945, it was they who took over the revolutionary tradition. Hence, there was still no accepted grand narrative of French history a situation made more complex by the rise of Gaulism and, su- and subsequently by the dominance of West Germany and Germany within the European Union. Still, there was one figure in French history who claimed to represent both monarchy and revolution. From Clovis to the Committee of Public Safety, I represented all, he said, and his name was Napoleon. I don't want to tackle Italy, whose political history is rather depressing and whose national icons, with the possible exception of Garibaldi, are literary, musical, and artistic ones. Nor do I want to discuss Britain, which has a magnificent grand narrative of defeating foreign enemies while cultivating parliamentary democracy and constitutional monarchy. But I'll take questions, if you like, afterwards. Americans, of course, have always enjoyed a very great grand narrative based on what's called American exceptionalism. The idea that ever since the Puritan mission to Massachusetts, the United States has been the continent given by God to his chosen people to populate and cultivate, so as to be the exemplar to lesser nations and the beacon of liberty to the rest of mankind. In Barack Obama's words, it remains not merely a place on the map, a light unto the world. The truth is that not only the president uh, and all his Republican rivals today believe this, but that the average American, along with the average American historian, still believes in the innate superiority of the American Constitution, American values, and the American way of life. And the man they see who confirmed all three and indeed redeemed America uh, forever by ridding it of the sin of slavery, is Abraham Lincoln, generally considered the greatest of US presidents. A national icon, therefore, illuminates the grand narratives of national pasts, but they must share certain qualities. All sorts of big names could, of course, illuminate national histories. I could have chosen to talk about Hitler or Robespierre or General Custer, but they would hardly serve as icons. Iconic status tends to need not merely positive qualities, but for the person to be involved, I think, in some existential struggle in the nation's history. Death and martyrdom help, and Lincoln especially, but to a lesser extent, Admiral Nelson and JFK have also benefited uh, in this regard. Involvement in war seems essential. Only leaders who have participated in national struggles need come into consideration. Bill Clinton was apparently aware that he was unlikely ever to count as a great president since he had never been involved in a major war. François Mitterrand apparently involved himself in the first Gulf War, hopeful that military glory might save his tarnished reputation. He was also deeply aware that Mrs Thatcher's reputation had been transformed by her victory in the Falklands War. Likewise, the Habsburg Emperors, Leopold I and Joseph II, hoped that their military campaigns would allow them to be called the Great, like Peter or Catherine of Russia. But their military achievements, however, were not, let's say, unambiguously successful. The same may be said of that other national icon, George Washington, who was never really around or made the decisive contribution when key battles were fought during the American War of Independence. Nor was his political contribution really decisive. He was, more, he was mainly silent during the convention in Philadelphia that drew up the U.S. Constitution, and he allowed Alexander Hamilton to dictate the work of his governments when president. On the other hand, he was admired by almost everybody and elected unopposed. Now, this perception of national unity is also important. National icons need to be seen to stand for a united nation. Thus, Lady Thatcher, who polarized the British to a unique degree, possesses iconic uh, status only among those on the right. De Gaulle, in a similar way, polarized the French, although he is historically a much more significant figure than Thatcher and much closer to iconic status. Then finally there's Churchill, who is certainly iconic, although he remained a divisive figure, even for the the left, even in 1945, he was held to have sent the army against the Welsh miners before 1914 to have backed intervention in Russia against the Bolsheviks. He led the government assault on the trade unions during the general strike, of course, and in 1945, he seemed to dismiss the idea of a national health service. Moreover, since his death, all sorts of historians have attempted to downgrade his contribution as war leader. Well, whether you agree with them or not, he surely, and in my mind, remains deservedly Britain's greatest national icon. One final point. National icons are expected to be progressive, Ideally, they should not merely save their nations in some sort of existential military struggle, but they should also take large steps along the path of progress. Thus, Frederick the Great not merely saved Prussia from destruction at the hands of a European coalition, but was a key figure in the Age of Enlightenment. Napoleon, too, was not merely a military genius, but a reformer, who rebuilt French government and finances, and gave her enlightened legal codes. Abraham Lincoln, of course, not merely won the Civil War, but redeemed America by emancipating its slaves. Well, by studying the careers of these people, ordinary people should be able to understand the development of their countries and take pride in their national histories. Without endorsing Thomas Carlyle's view of history as a work of heroes, many people seem to believe this. But should they? Should history serve as a national comfort blanket? Another way of looking at these men is to demonstrate that even the greatest of national icons have feet of clay. The real purpose of studying them should be to help us realize that history is a very critical and complicated discipline, and that the careers of even the greatest historical figures are in some ways very much like our own, rarely marked by uninterrupted success or clarity of vision, often vitiated by frustrated ambition and unforeseen consequences. Indeed, very often in history, nothing is as it seems. So let me look at these people in some more detail. They had a lot in common. They were all war leaders. They all combined the roles of civil and military leaders. They didn't really have to worry about political opposition within their administrations, although Lincoln did have to stand for re-election in the middle of his war. They all worked phenomenally hard and spared themselves no hardship uh, in pursuit of their aims. They were all probably atheists, they all had ambiguous sex lives. Frederick II and Lincoln were probably homosexual, Napoleon bisexual, although he was probably impotent. Two of them contemplated suicide, indeed Napoleon even attempted it unsuccessfully. Well, one was shot, of course. The irony, of course, is that none of them was really a national leader at all, and that the wars they became involved in were largely of their own making. Finally, whatever the reforming records, again very ambiguous, the results of their careers was that untold millions of ordinary people died. Frederick's wars brought death to about 10% of Prussia's population, some 400,000 not to mention those who died in the service of his enemies. Napoleon's wars brought death to a million and a half Frenchmen between 1803 and 1815, 200,000 more than died for France in the First World War. The U.S. Civil War, Mr. Lincoln's War, resulted in 625,000 deaths, the equivalent of 5 million today. More people died in that one war than in all of America's other wars, including the World Wars, put together. So perhaps the world, therefore, would have been much better off if none of these national icons had ever been born. Anyway, allow me to pursue some of these points in detail. Clearly, none of these people was a national leader. In the words of one distinguished historian, the notion that Brandenburg, Prussia, had a national mission to unite the German nation under German rule, was utterly alien to the francophone Frederick the Great, who was famously dismissive of contemporary German culture and believed in the primacy of the state, not the nation. In the words of another, the Battle of Rosbach, the foundation stone of Prussia's military success, was won by a Frenchified king and an army of foreign mercenaries against troops which were mainly German. According to another, Germany was a land that Frederick had simply never, ever dreamed of. Frederick claimed to speak German only to his horses. His hero was Louis XIV of France. And although he spent a huge amount of time during wartime writing bad French poetry, he also found the time to write to the, uh, the French foreign secretary, Cardinal Fleury, telling to him, I'm a better Frenchman than you are. Indeed, after starting his Second Silesian War, he told the French that he had done it so that France could regain Alsace. He told them, you need only look at a map to convince yourself that the natural frontiers of France go right up to the Rhine. Napoleon was hardly a national leader either. After after all, he was a Corsican patriot who became Emperor of France, but also King of Italy, protector of Germany, and who placed his brothers on the thrones of Holland and Spain. Other relatives were given Naples, Berg, and Westphalia. The world, not France, was Napoleon's oyster. France was merely his military base. If things had gone well, he would not only have kept the whole of Europe under his sceptre, but would have attempted to extend his empire to the Near East, America, and India. Little wonder then, he told Prince Eugene, his viceroy in Italy, quote, show respect for the nation you govern, and show it all the more as you discover less ground for it. You will come to see in time that there is little difference between one nation and another. The first sacrifice you will have to make is to fall in with certain of the customs that you absolutely detest. Lincoln, of course, could not be a national leader either. Since he was waging a civil war against the South, which preferred to secede rather than be led by him. Lincoln had never taken the South seriously and would never admit that Southerners constituted a separate nation or possessed the legal right to secede, which incidentally they clearly did. His whole policy, therefore, was to treat the Civil War as a rebellion led by individuals Where they saw the error of their ways might be pardoned by him the radical congressional view that southern states had indeed seceded and could only be readmitted to the union by congress as was the case with all new states was one which Lincoln could never accept it was basically this difference of opinion that led congress to impeach Lincoln's successor his previous vice president that's President Andrew Johnson Perhaps, had Lincoln lived, Congress would have had to impeach him. Was the South really a separate nation? Here I can only defer to the views of Dominic Leven. And in that superb book of his on empire, Childe even writes, quote, 258,000 Confederate soldiers died in the Civil War, one out of every three who served. Between 75 and 85% of all white men of military age fought in the army an incredibly high percentage. Confederate percentages of men mobilized and killed are vastly higher than American losses and participation in any other war, including the War of Independence. If the South had won, a Confederate nation would have lived forever. Wars create nations. The immense commitment and suffering invested uh, in Southern victory would have set national independence in stone for generations. Lincoln was a national leader only in the north. All these leaders had also begun the wars they were involved in. In Frederick's case, there was hardly any doubt. He just marched into Silesia or Saxony when he saw fit without any previous declaration of war. He told Voltaire in 1741 he had invaded Silesia merely to make a name for himself. He told other friends that he meant to stride on the stage of history like a new Alexander. When the king of Saxony objected to his invasion of his country in 1756, Frederick told him he was taking it in any case since he prided himself on being original. Napoleon, of course, felt that only continuous success in battle legitimised his regime so that he could never compromise with any of the other European powers. Peace, he felt... Uh, would be his ruin. He told Metternich in Dresden in 1813 that sovereigns from established dynasties could be defeated and return home without any challenge to their authority, but he couldn't. Hence, he would never surrender even a handful of soil. He always bet on winning the next battle, and mainly did so until Radetzky in 1813 devised the Allied strategy that defeated him. Waterloo was really just a postscript. What then of Lincoln? Did he fight a war of defense against southern aggression? Surely not. The South merely wanted to secede and be left in peace. He had no plans to invade the North. Lincoln, on the other hand, was determined to stop secession and to do so by invading Virginia and capturing the Confederate capital of Richmond, which was an unconstitutional act. Avoiding any appeal to the Supreme Court... You'd have thought that if you had a dispute over the the legality of secession, you might go to the Supreme Court, and Lincoln was a lawyer. No, he avoided the Supreme Court over the issue of succession. He arranged for the resupply of Fort Sumter in South Carolina, informed the state's authorities there of what he was doing, and when the Confederates fired on the fort, Lincoln commented, aha, the plan has worked. Still, there was no need for civil war. His predecessor, the much-derided President Buchanan, had attempted to resupply the fort, and the Confederates had fired on his ship, but Buchanan had refused to start a war. Lincoln, on the other hand, mobilized volunteers and ordered the invasion of the South. War, he thought, was inevitable and should come sooner rather than later, and in any case, he thought the North was invincible. All of these leaders directed their wars very personally. Napoleon ran both the civilian and military side of affairs himself. There was no war cabinet. Even Talleyrand, as foreign minister, was a mere cipher, despite claims by recent biographers that he somehow dominated Napoleon. Napoleon, in fact, humiliated Talleyrand before the whole court by calling him a shit and his wife a whore. Nobody dominated Napoleon. Frederick the Great again ran everything by himself. His ministers were treated as mere secretaries, and Lincoln too made sure that he alone ran the show. The show, of course, he had a cabinet, but he was now commander-in-chief, and in com- as commander-in-chief, he dictated almost everything, and that was particularly true in military affairs. All the more so, since none of the generals, or most of the generals, had any more experience of fighting a war than he had. Considering that he didn't really have any professional army to speak of when he became president, given that 60% of Americans had voted against him in 1860, that his Republican Party had never been in power before, that he himself had no experience of office, and that nobody in the South had voted for him except 1% of voters in Maryland, so 2% 2 in Maryland and 1% in Virginia, one has to admire the ego of someone uh, who could now start a war, not merely without an army, but without a strategy, without a general staff, and without any plan for reconstruction. But not only did he start a war, but he's made his generals understand that he expected to win it, And he then went through a whole series of generals as commanders of the Army of the Union, most of them serving a couple of months, some of them lasting for a year. And even when he got Grant at the end as his chief, he had a special agent in Grant's camp, a man called Charles Dana, who sent him daily reports from Grant's headquarters. And when he thought Grant wasn't doing well enough, Grant was summoned back to Washington and given a dressing down. Um... He wasn't even very happy with the victory at Gettysburg. Meade, the Union General there, had let Lee escape. Uh, Lincoln wrote, the war will probably be prolonged indefinitely. It would be unreasonable to expect, and I don't expect you can now effect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. And he kept telling uh, uh, his generals that they had to destroy Lee and the Confederate army. Um, to hurry things along, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, imprisoned thousands of opponents, closed down opposition newspapers, wiretapped others, and ended up with 10,000 political prisoners. Sherman and Sheridan were allowed on the basis of general orders drawn up by General Pope, to treat the civilian population of the South almost like Indians. Sherman called for the extermination of the civil population as well as the Confederate army. Uh, and he did his best to uh, show the barbarism that could be inflicted on civilians when his army marched to Atlanta. Whole towns were raised to the ground, homes pillaged, livestock destroyed, despite harbouring only old men, women and children. Today all these actions would be regarded as war crimes. A Sioux uprising, meanwhile, was brutally suppressed, with Lincoln approving the largest public execution in US history. All of these three icons paid scant regard to constitutions of laws in order to win their votes. Uh, sorry, in order to win their wars. Napoleon, of course, was the creator of law courts, He rearranged states, but he brought in Lettres de Cachet again. Uh, He set up special courts to deal with royalists and other opponents. Lincoln imposed his own interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, ignored most of it during the war. Um, Frederick, uh, of course, um, was simply the, the law embodied in himself as absolute ruler. Were any of these people great reformers? Well, yes. Frederick... Enjoyed a reputation for enlightenment, he abolished torture, he allowed freedom of religion, but basically he didn't do a great deal more. Napoleon was the great reformer. He completely reorganized and centralized French government. My government he boasted at Helena, was the most solidly condensed and with the fastest circulation and the most immediate power for action that has ever existed. He had the tax returns brought up to date and the tax system reformed. A Bank of France was established with a monopoly of banknotes. A special fund was set up for indemnities and special contributions from vassal states. So until 1813, the wars he fought mainly paid for themselves. Financial success was based on the centralization of local government under prefects, and all lower levels of administration were centralized. Then there was the Concordat with the Pope in 1801, whereby bishops would be appointed by Napoleon. Society, said Napoleon, is impossible without inequality, inequality intolerable without a code of morality, a code of morality unacceptable without a religion, and that religion must be in the hands of the government. His law code, starting with his Civil Code of 1801, did most, perhaps, to stamp his rule on France and later Europe, but he also reorganized education with his lycées and the University of France, a sort of ministry of education. Finally, uh, his egalitarian and authoritarian form of enlightenment was crowned by the introduction of the Légion d'Honneur. Lincoln, of course, is remembered as the redeemer president, although he was a thorough racist who wanted to remove all Americans black, America's blacks back to Africa or indeed to any tropical country uh, which would have them. His party, the Republicans, thought of itself as the party of the Caucasian race and wanted to keep the North and West open exclusively for free white families. It opposed the extension of slavery because it opposed blacks of any kind entering Northern states. Lincoln himself made his career in Illinois, a state which free blacks were discouraged from entering and where there couldn't be jurors, attend public schools, bear testimony against whites, or enter into legal contracts. When asked to sign a petition against this black code, Lincoln refused. Meanwhile, uh, in a debate that year with Stephen Douglas, he famously pronounced that he didn't believe in the physical, political, or social equality of blacks who'd (laughs) always, he said, remain an inferior race. It's true that he opposed slavery, but he was in no hurry to abolish it. In his eulogy at Henry Clay's funeral, he repeated Clay's and Jefferson's fear that abolition would lead to worse problems than slavery itself, and he hated abolitionists who had deprived Clay of the presidency in 1844. When the war started, he repudiated the actions of generals like Fremont and Hunter, who freed slaves and captured territory. The war was one to save the Union, he stressed. He had no authority to free slaves. Then when the war went badly and he needed blacks to fight for the Union, he brought in the Emancipation Proclamation. By this time, however, slaves were freeing themselves and running to Union army lines where they were kept as contraband by Union officers and used as non-combat troops. Congress, meanwhile, was backing these efforts with Confiscation Acts. Lincoln caught up with events, meanwhile, with his Emancipation Proclamation, which came in two parts. The preliminary proclamation of September sixty-two said that if the South returned to the Union, it could keep all its slaves. Meanwhile, slave owners in the pro-Union slave states, that's Delaware, Maryland, Tennessee, and Kentucky, would be compensated if they freed theirs, and he gave them till 1900 to make up their minds. This is in 1862, you have till 1900 to decide whether voluntarily you'd like to free your slaves. So he didn't seem to be in any hurry. But since no one paid any attention to the preliminary proclamation, a new one was issued in January 63 that freed the slaves, but only slaves in Confederate territory. This meant, of course, that not a single slave was actually freed by the Proclamation, although Lincoln had made it illegal to keep slaves in the Confederacy. The London Spectator joked that to be a slaveholder, you now had to be a Unionist. It was the 13th Amendment of 1865, passed by Congress, that then freed all slaves. The question arose about whether Freedmen should have the right to vote, and in this issue, Lincoln eventually came round to agreeing, well, perhaps very highly educated blacks, plus some union union veterans, might qualify. But his first priority was to take the $600,000 given to him by Congress to organize the transportation of free blacks to Africa or Central America. He had a delegation of free blacks visit him at the White House, and he told them that the two races were completely different that they couldn't live together even in freedom, and that the very presence of blacks in America caused distress to white folks. His initial attempts at colonization as the process was then called failed, but the two or three days before he died in 1965, he was telling General Butler that now 180,000 blacks had been trained by the Union Army to fight How could you possibly send them back to the South? It would start a racial war. So he asked Butler, saying that we've now got all these ships. We don't need for a naval blockade of the South. Couldn't we use them all to take all these empty ships, to take all these blacks, feed blacks, veterans, and all, and send them back to Africa after all? Uh, uh, Sorry, General Butler said he looked into this, but he didn't think there were enough ships. Uh, That was the news Lincoln got just about the time he got shot. So much then for our national icons. The status means that all too often they're given the benefit of the doubt. Lincoln in particular is given the benefit of every doubt over his racism, his plans for colonization, emancipation, reconstruction, his atheism and his homosexuality. Frederick the Great and Napoleon are less vital, much less vital to the Uh, the national uh, narratives of Germany or France, for people to worry about their obviously strange sexual histories. But the point is this. National icons are so vital to popular perceptions of national history that professional historians should give them the benefit, not of doubt, but of forensic historical inquiry. Critical history is the only kind of history worth pursuing and it should apply to everyone, great men and women especially. Thank you. No, (laughs) well, yes, why not sit down?
0: Well, I'd like to thank Alan for what we expected, really, which was a very wide-ranging, immeasurably knowledgeable and um, very thought-provoking lecture. While people are thinking of questions, I'd like to start off, really, with a question, which is, is, who are you attacking here? Is it professional historians,
1: or is it a kind of wider view of the general public about these people? Um, I'm not attacking anybody I never attack well, anybody is, what, who, a, who what is, I was doing I was merely suggesting that anybody mm. students, professional historians, popular historians journalists or anyone else who mm. spin yarns about the uh, incredibly unblemished careers of national icons should actually look to the facts and get them right
0: Yes, can you wait till the roving mic reaches you, because the acoustics aren't great
2: here. Hi. I still have one million possible <laughs> questions on the which <laughs> I'll ask for one, and then a general point. Hmm. If, if the Republicans in the 1860s were so racist and pro-slavery, why was it those few African-Americans who had the vote all voted for them? Like, if you just look at the voting patterns, African-Americans all over the North, wherever they're given a vote, vote overwhelmingly oh. Republicanly republican consistently in the 19th century. Secondly, in terms of the general theme of icons, national icons, it strikes me, at least for these three examples, and I think this more applies, most important thing is to be a leader in a really big war that you actually win. And that possibly some of the differences between Frederick the Great and the Kaiser in particular owe a great deal to the results of the war, um, but I think that could be applied to quite a lot of these other people as well. So I was wondering whether you think that's, it, in a sense, it's almost like a descendant of, sort of the tribal belief that the. Great King as the one who's won the war.
1: Uh, well, let me start with the last point first. Um, yeah, if Frederick. The, if the Empress Elizabeth of Russia hadn't died and Peter the Third hadn't become Tsar in 1762, and Frederick had been crushed as he expected to be in 1762, and Prussia would been dismembered, then yeah, you know, I don't think we'd remember Frederick the Great as a national icon. You're right in that. I mean, the success is actually, you, you know, key. Uh, a key issue. Um, the other thing about the Republicans and blacks well, uh, of course 99% of blacks in America are in the South so we're not talking about blacks in the North voting Republican, we're talking about blacks in the South and what ha- you're talking about blacks in the South and what happens to them uh, after Lincoln shot No, no look, even before then there
2: are blacks in the North who like, can vote vote
1: Republican I mean, they do also vote Republican afterwards as well the, the, but, I, there are very, almost no blacks in the north <laughs> yeah they do very very rarely but if you've got the choice if you've got a vote and almost none of them do if you've got a choice between democrats and republicans well there's a choice between two evils and presumably the republicans uh, which contains some abolitionists of course there's an abolitionist wing to the republican party there's no abolitionist wing to the democratic party where really, so you say you, on the whole you would, vote, you, you, you would vote republican. In the south uh, again uh, once you get radical reconstruction under people who thought that you know, Lincoln was uh, racist but, but he 's dead by now, and once you 've got reconstruction in the South, the blacks are given the vote because otherwise the Republicans can 't get to power in the South. Uh, without black votes, then of course the, the blacks, if they've got a vote, will vote Republican. Because uh, if if you get the the white supremacists and Democrats taking control, as happens after 1877, you know they'll just eventually be squeezed out. I, I think it's quite straightforward.
0: Right. Okay. There. Were two, I'm going to collect two or three questions now. You first, the gentleman here, and then the lady here, uh, and then here. I'll collect three questions. I saw there some questions up, yeah, up there too, but. That'll be the next
3: batch, yeah. Very quick, no debate, fantastic talk. About f- first, why did you choose Bismarck over uh, Frederick over Bismarck? Mm-hmm. Second, if, if Napoleon wanted to extend his empire to America, why did he sell Louisiana to them in 1803? That's a nasty one, but I'm sure there's a good answer. Thanks.
0: Sorry, can you... The first part was why did he choose totally choose unconnected Bismarck? What was yeah, the why, why, did,
3: he, why didn't, did he consider... Um, did Alan Skedkins sk- consider... Uh, looking at Bismarck rather than Frederick and if not uh, and the second one was uh, unrelated, entirely unrelated. Um, if Napoleon wanted Hegemony and possibly extending to America, why did he sell Louisville <coughs> to them in 1803? Well, well, basically... I so want so to collect a couple of other
0: questions. Oh, sorry. You know, made that's a good question. question here in the middle. The lady here.
4: Thanks. Um, about icons, um, I think you only fleetingly passed over women in terms of Margaret Thatcher. And I wonder whether you'd pick on any women in particular who might be regarded as icons, thinking of perhaps Elizabeth I, because of what she represents for England, and then wondering, with all the hoo-ha going on, about uh, the current queen. And also, I was thinking about black people, and I wondered whether you would regard Mandela as not just a national icon, but an international icon.
0: Thank you, Professor Scared, for a very stimulating lecture. May I just ask you about one icon you didn't include, namely Robert the Bruce, <laughs> who is being very heavily used now, and uh, we're looking at a referendum on Bannockburn coming up very soon. Uh, and, of course, he meets many of your criteria, victorious in war, existential struggle, fits the political narrative, and so on. I just wondered, uh, one, what you, did you, do you think that he deserves his iconic status, or do you not hold that view? Uh, and two, do you think uh, he is as politically useful as Alex Salmon thinks he is?
1: All right. Um. Robert, Bruce, Robert the Bruce. Uh, can I say, so, again, take them to the last ones first? Uh, Robert the Bruce. Well, as a Scot, what can I say? Yes, he still has iconic uh, status. Uh, I mean, Alec Salmond, I sometimes think, sh- I mean, if I were opposing I'd be calling him Alec the Bruce, or uh, Body Prince Alec, or um, Alec, Queen of Scots, or something. Um, but Robert the Bruce, you could do the same kind of thing on, all right, he's got this iconic status, he fits certainly these categories, but again, uh, if you look at him uh, in detail, uh he's he's really uh an Anglo Norman baron. He he speaks French, his family speak French, Bruce is a French not Scottish name, um he's a murderer, he kills one of his leading opponents inside a church of all places. Um and um you know, uh once he becomes king uh, his family then <laughs> tried to take over Ireland, and don't see themselves as particularly Scottish. They're just medieval warlords, in, in, in many ways. So I doubt whether any of this will filter through to the average Scot voting uh, in Sun's referendum. But uh, of, of course, you, you, you could do a forensic job on Robert the Bruce the same way as you can on on Lincoln. Um, again, if you, even the others, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and I. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Their, their main aim is to get thrown in London. Scotland is simply a, a stage towards London and they, uh, they're they much more interested in becoming British or English monarchs rather than Scottish ones. But, you know, this is popular history and with Braveheart uh, a film, what was an Australian actor and a, uh, made in Ireland by that a German director or something. Well, anyway, it's, it all goes into the mix and this is why popular iconic status as dangerous and why historians should be there to pull these icons apart or, or give the two story. Uh, does that deal with that? Um, Elizabeth I Well, um, yeah, I mean if England becomes independent (laughs) uh, then no doubt Elizabeth's first iconic status will go up but she can hardly be quite the the national icon for Britain as a whole I think um, simply because Scotland uh, was independent at that time but yes, she obviously has a certain amount of iconic status among the English, She, she does win wars, she does bring in reforms but then I suppose a lot of Catholics might have certain doubts about her iconic status. Uh, Elizabeth II, well, she's nice and dutiful. She's been around for 60 years. Um, I'm a great admirer of, well, almost. I, I think she, she might have, uh, even behind the scenes, did something about uh, the rise of Scottish nationalism and the European Union. But she, she seems just to take whatever advice she's given, and she thinks that's her constitutional status. Um, so yeah she's she's fine and I don't think I don't think anybody will anybody will say much to disparage her until she dies and then we'll see where the, the moniker goes on I suspect it will Mandela, yes, of course, he's another international uh, icon rather than a national icon. He's certainly the national icon for South Africa. But I didn't mention him because if I went around and tried to figure every national icon everywhere in history, I'd, you'd be here until next week, really. Uh, I thought three big ones were enough. Oh, Bismarck, sorry. sorry. Uh, Bismarck and the Louisiana Purchase bill. Well, first of all, the Louisiana Purchase. Um, what goes wrong for Napoleon in America is that the, the main um, most uh, profitable part of the, the French Empire in America is of course Saint-Domingue, Haiti, with sugar plantations and everything, but they lose Haiti. Haiti has a revolution in the middle of the French Revolution, gets independence, and Napoleon tries to win it back, and it reintroduce slavery which he tries to reintroduce slavery into Haiti, uh, and the French are defeated. So given that he can't get Haiti back, uh, that's the foothold at the center uh, of his ambitions in America, and since that's gone up in smoke, uh, and since Louisiana really belongs to Spain anyway, uh, and he can get the money for it, uh, it suits his priorities at the time to sell it to the Americans. That's the story about the Louisiana Purchase. Um, Bismarck well I thought about Bismarck but uh, (coughs) his historical stock seems to have um, uh, gone down after the the First World War. The the main period for the Bismarck uh, myth (coughs) is actually the 1890s and the period up to about 1915 that's when you get the huge um, statues of Bismarck built. First the huge one in the Berlin Tiergarten which is about 7 foot tall rather impressive uh, uh, with its back to the uh, and, and then you have the, the huge one was at Hamburg uh, you have one that's about 75 foot tall and they were planning to build an even larger one but then they lost the war so um, his, his, the, 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 the regime he created the, the second Reich once it went down, Bismarck became less of an icon and he He was also very divisive in the sense that Frederick isn't remembered as being divisive. Um, Bismarck brought in anti socialist laws, brought in laws against the Catholics, the Kulturkampf, uh, and he had to be sacked eventually by Wilhelm II, the Kaiser, because he wanted to take back the constitution uh, and have a Gewaltstreik, a coup d'etat from above, and uh, turn. abolished the right to vote and he wanted to turn the Reichstag into a corporate diet of his states and Wilhelm II who wanted to be loved by his people uh, said no and he sacked sacked Bismarck so Bismarck goes down as someone who's gone against his previous achievements and doesn't trust the people, doesn't like them any longer uh, and doesn't want them to vote any longer so he's very divisive and he's always been anti-socialist and anti-Catholic he talks about Reichsfinder enemies of the Reich and so he doesn't really have the claim to iconic status, I think, that people think Frederick has. Right. Give
0: you a break. Um, I, I know Roy Bridge has to go, so ask your question,
1: question quickly. Question. Yeah. Apropos German you made.
0: Thank you very much. A very
1: interesting, stimulating talk. Is this working? Yes. Yeah. Apropos um, the last point about Bismarck, the Germans did, I think find the hero. And it all got buried after the First World War. And more than Bismarck, and grotesque as it may seem to us, for he certainly wasn't a reformer and hadn't either the brains or the inclination to reform Germany, was William I. And the talk in the official circles and official propaganda in the Second Reich is all about William the Victorious, they call the fellow. Um, he's now forgotten. Mm. So down in the 1870s, was the only, really the high point of his career. But they did have an official hero then, I think, who would have ranked with Frederick, because the Kaiser talks quite openly about Frederick the Great and William the Victorious. Um, yeah, yeah, but of course the thing is buried with the First World War. But it disappears War. after the First World yeah. War. Yeah. thank you. Okay, thank you. But I know
0: there was a question here, I guess, several. Okay, can we go to this side of the room, and then we'll come back to that side?
5: My question is, I've started his good. No, My career was quite... Um, but I just thought that um, now that you have a united... He did unite Germany. Frederick the Great never thought of a united Germany, but without Frederick's uh, career, Bismarck wouldn't have been possible. I understand until Frederick the Great Vienna was the centre of German culture and politics, the Habsburg Empire, Bismarck pushed Austria out of Germany with the, the, the war victory uh, at Koenigretz, and united under pressure, and now we know even... But his legacy is now not so negative, because it, after Hitler, you've got a, a democratic Germany, and then you have a Marxist, and now united Germany, and I think people are revising that of Bismarck, that he wasn't as reactionary, that he did unite the country, and after... just It was only a brief period from 1890 to 1945 that Germany was more aggressive. But that's no longer the problem. Modern Germany is... A very good things about it, but that Bismarck, it wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for Bismarck. So i just like your views about Bismarck not being quite as reactive as you might suggest you
0: want.
1: Yeah, uh, remember, of course, in 1866, most Germans uh, were against Bismarck. Um, he won by battles, but uh, most of the states supported Austria. Uh, and uh, the German nationalist movement weren't very uh, happy with Bismarck in 64 and 66 Um, so he does unite them and uh, he gets more support when he goes to war against France and they all unite against France but uh, he is for most of his career a divisive rather than a unifying figure even if he unifies Germany and most of the writing on Bismarck since 45 has been mixed I mean, people accept he's a, he's a first-rate diplomat, but, you know, even with his diplomacy, there are some areas where he makes it too complicated. His successors obviously feel that they can't continue the same system that he had inaugurated. But, um, you know, he, he, brings, he, he tries to bring in a, some kind of welfare state to uh, mollify the working-class opposition. Uh, he eventually repeals the anti-Catholic laws... Uh, but he has brought in the culture camp and he has been very severe on the Catholics for about a decade and then the socialists of course uh, he does try and drive underground and if he'd had his way the Reichstag uh, as a parliament would have been abolished yes, this gentleman here. Um, yeah. um, Stalin appears to uh, meet your criteria for a national icon and as the Sorry, me- Stalin oh. As the memory of his crimes fade, shouldn't that worry us more than what people think about Frederick the Great? Um, I mean, Stalin is remembered gratefully by many Russians as a man who won the, the great patriotic war against Hitler. Yes, of course. Um, I think there are still Georgians who treat him with some kind of national um, reverence. But I, I, I don't think, on the whole, uh, that he's up at the top. There was a poll on Moscow television about who was the greatest Russian. I don't think Stalin came top. I think everyone expected that the Russians would put Stalin top, but he didn't. I can't remember. I think it was Pushkin that came on top. I think he came a third fourth or fifth. So that was that was a slightly hopeful sign. We were afraid that Stalin would come on top. But I, I don't really, I haven't done Russian history because I I don't know enough about modern views of whether Catherine the Great or Peter the Great or all these people are regarded as icons. I just hope President Putin doesn't become one.
0: Hi.
6: um, Two questions on my side. First in terms of uh, your interpretation of critical history. I mean, is it and slavery uh, the question of slavery is an interesting one uh, does one when one ap- looks back and applies sort of criticism in the historical achievements of one is it is it almost fair or meaningful to judge them by today's standards because obviously looking back any military leader um whether that's Lincoln or Sherman or whoever will come lacking versus what are considered today's um, civil rights or uh, rights regarding um, uh, human rights in, in the application of warfare. for question one. And question two, Mandela I thought was interesting. Does it reflect the fact that in today's age uh, the power of the state is increasingly being dissipated, whether that is um, overwhelmed by market forces or gravitating towards civilizational Um, boundaries does that imply that the notion of the national icon will progressively dissipate as well and we will gravitate more towards international icons
1: Um, I'm not sure you're right on that last point I I think the boundaries of the state and the nation state are still fairly secure Um, uh, if the European Union collapses then they might become more secure Um, I doubt whether European integration is at its Uh, a phrase where you think it's going to flourish go on, Uh, I think there are going to be national reactions to European uh, policy to maintain the euro if they manage to Um, I I, I, I think the globalisation thing is overdone because even though there are forces uh, encouraging globalisation in the world, uh, in the end ordinary citizens are governed by their national governments uh, and depending on how their national governments react to National domestic forces or international ones, uh, that will, uh, so, so will the reputation of the, the, the leaders or prime ministers, whoever, depend. I mean, I think we, we might still get national icons in the future. Um, I've forgotten the previous points made about whether you should judge people by the standards of the time or the standards of the present day. Well, this is one of the great dilemmas. That historians have. I mean, there's one school of historians says you uh, you you empathise and you know, what you what what this the, the, they, uh, you go back to the German school. Um, what you have to do is show what actually happened vis a ranker. I mean, you have to get into the mindset of the day and sympathise and explain the problems of these people as they confronted events and of course. Uh, according to the values of their time, and then you've got other people like E.H. Carr that says the whole point of history is to look back from the present, and what historians do is reinterpret history in the light of their own prejudices and their own points of view, and you know each generation looking back sees history from a different perspective, uh, and you know there's a lot to be said for both points of view. I think so. I sit in the fence there.
0: I think we, this side, we ought to have some questions from this side. You first, because I think you've been waiting for a long time, the gentleman with the beard next to Robert Boyce. Yes,
3: uh, thank you very much. There's uh, quotes there which I think we'll all take away and hopefully use. I certainly hope I do. Like all history, should be critical history. Um, I used to work in a, an EU mission in the Ukraine, and certainly there, judging from the composition of a staffer, assure you the austro hungarian empire hasn 't gone uh, we 're all austro hungarians in the widest sense. Um, my question is um, based on your last point the, the bit about uh, history should be critical. We should judge icons as well. Do you think this is part there, there is a real risk that generally both historians and also uh, the, 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 both the informed and general public um, are becoming less critical or or perhaps not seeing, joining things up that they should, perhaps given that all all eras have topics which are off limits, and very often those are the key issues, and that perhaps uh, there are certain things now that could not be spoken of uh, particularly clearly, uh, whereas they might have been 50 or even 100 years ago.
1: Uh, no, if anything, I think popular uh, culture is probably more critical today, and I, I think the media is more critical today. You could talk about things in the media, but past figures and talk—you know—go into aspects of their lives that you probably couldn't have discussed 30 or 40 years ago. Um, whether you could cover everything, I don't know. I mean, television, for example, a lot of it depends on where there's film available, which means that, you know, before the 20th century, there are all sorts of things one would like to make films and videos about, but how do you do it? I mean, I remember seeing someone who tried to do a video of the history of the Habsburg Empire, and we ended up with endless uh, montage of uh, horses, white horses from the Spanish riding school uh, and the Vienna Boys Choir, and that, that was about it, and it got tediously boring very quickly. Uh, Channel 4 for example the man who was in charge of history at Channel 4 whose name I've forgotten refuses to make documentaries on American history because he says nobody in Britain's interested in American history so when I wanted to do a documentary on Lincoln which I persuaded the BBC to do I'd gone to Channel 4 first and was told no there's no interest we never do documentaries on American history uh, the BBC then uh, although it was the documentary I was advising on and appeared in was much more critical perhaps than previous documentaries on history but they had to sell it to make a profit to the United States uh, and so it ended up being much more saccharine uh, and much more defensive about Lincoln than I'd wanted it to be uh, and the director sent me an email before I saw it uh, saying Alan I have to apologise you, know, you won't like... How uh, it's been done at the end, and, and I could see that they decided that the sales were as uh, much part of the uh, mission statement than than the thing I wrote. Uh, anyways, anyways, anyways. But I mean, um, again, th- it's not just that. I mean, I think there is a, still a huge general popular interest in history. If you look at the the pages of the Sunday Times culture section or other magazines you'll find the history books on the whole dominate Uh, and I think biographies and history books of all periods it's not just Stalin and Hitler although one of my ex-students who was half German used to always refer to the UK history channel as the Nazi channel (laughs) because (laughs) all it showed was other documentaries about the Nazis or World War II had no interest in anything else but uh, if you look at the, the books that are being reviewed, uh, they, they cover all periods of history, ancient history, medieval history, modern, modern. and, you know, I, I think that history among the general public is actually doing quite well. And I, and I don't think there's any attempt to suppress parts mm-hmm. of it. Okay. Well, I, I can see quite a
0: lot of hands still up, so I'm going to collect a couple more from this side, and then I'll go back and do this side. Yeah, then we ought to stop. But, okay, so I can, So we'll collect some batches. I think there are three on. hands up on this side. So Robert Boyce, the gentleman there. Uh,
5: thank you, Alan. Uh, we,
0: we can all think of uh, a few subjects of biography who have uh, received rigorous critical treatment. Uh, uh, some of the names have been mentioned already. Hitler, Stalin, their their lieutenants.
1: Perhaps I should add Radetzky and Metternich. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and no no, we could all all think of a few others in
3: addition to that. But given the tendency of
5: historians uh, uh, today, as well as in days gone by, uh,
0: the tendency of bio- biographers uh, uh, to yield to a form of hagiography. Uh, should we not regard biography as the French used to do? Unfortunate, perhaps, unfortunately, don't any longer. Is a, a slightly unsuitable genre for the Academy? Yeah, hold on. There are two more while you think about that one. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Back here, I think Chris missed the ball. No, OK, you first.
3: Um, I wonder if you'd agree that there's occasionally um, benefits to promulgating um, myths of national icons. I'm thinking in terms of the formation of nations, particularly in anti colonial struggles, and uh, also in times of reconciliation uh, when nations have suffered great strife. And perhaps that's the great benefit of looking at Abraham Lincoln in such a way today and Nelson Mandela, uh, who's previously been mentioned.
0: That's So the the question there was about the importance of national icons and anti-colonial struggles particularly. Yeah,
3: the benefits
0: of promulgating these myths at times.
6: The benefits of? of Promulgating the myths Uh of
0: national icons. And yeah. Thank you. We'll come back to this side. Um,
5: I fear I may be repeating to a certain extent the themes of the two previous questions. But I want to comment that it seems like everybody in this room has a good suggestion of what might constitute a national icon. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe that indicates to you that um, the
1: selection of national icons is a bit more of a partial and an interested endeavor rather than an objective one. Um, having rationally said that, I have to ask,
5: how did you not include Franklin Roosevelt in this? Because <laughs> uh, he, see, to me, he just seems like the
1: perfect example. Uh, thank you.
0: Okay, do you want to answer those, Alan, and then we'll come back to this
1: side? Um our biography is unsuitable for professional historians well there's someone who's just written one <laughs> I, I have to refute that idea um i mean clearly they're not the only task of the professional historian um and i'm sure professor brush when she writes her biography of Gabulka, will have the same feelings that you know History just doesn't happen by itself. I mean, wars don't happen by themselves. Someone has to give orders, command armies, take decisions, make mistakes. So although, you know, we have to talk to students about the large forces in history, you know, economic, uh, intellectual, all the other ones, um, you know, these forces work through individuals. And some individuals are much more important than others. Uh, and uh, you know we have to really think about why when these forces are working at the command or through an individual you know why these individuals take the decisions that they do I mean have they been programmed one way or another because of their past and yeah, you start looking at it, is it the childhood, I remember Professor uh, Ragnall Hatton well, I think she gave her inaugural here many, many, many months ago. <laughs> she appointed me, at, yes, and tells you how old that is. Um, anyway, she, she talked about biography, I think, in her inaugural lecture, and she came up with a wonderful statement that uh, she had come to the conclusion you couldn't be a biographer uh, unless you been a mother and experienced childbirth. So, I mean, but given, given some standards, I couldn't possibly comment therefore on um, <laughs> on biography. But, I mean, I, I, I think that given that individuals do have a role in history, without saying it's a dominant role in history, uh, we, we can't really avoid writing biographies. I think they are useful as long uh, as they set the individual in their context, which I hope I did uh, in my biography of Rudetsky and my study of Metony um, so that's how I'd respond um, then anticolonial struggles. Oh, the anti-colonial struggles um, well uh, I, I, I think I don't know, I think to people in the, the metropolis I think probably to people in London or Paris or wherever, it was a colonial struggle going on, and I suppose in the 60s and 70s, when there were so many colonial struggles going on at the same time, um, the only way people could keep track of what was going on was by knowing about a few individuals and identifying a particular struggle with a particular individual. Otherwise, you just had a general feeling that it was all about, you know, the uprising of the oppressed against the, the nasty imperialists. But this was successful or unsuccessful because of some person in a particular country who managed to put a party together and, you know, organise resistance in a particular way. And some, of course, you know, became real cult figures. You know. Uh, Cuba provided Castro and uh, Guevara Um, Che is now being forensically destructed I'm sure the same thing will happen to Castro himself but um, yeah I I, I suppose uh, every struggle needs a symbol I mean Churchill was necessary during the second world war and I, I suppose all struggles are lucky if they manage to get some national figure or leader uh, who can appeal to a wider international audience in a positive way so yeah I suppose it does help Um, the last point was FDR FDR. (laughs) Um, mm. well I think FDR uh, is probably one of these figures who uh, should be a choice for a great national icon I suppose to many people he is, but he's again extraordinarily divisive. Uh, Abraham Lincoln doesn't divide Americans the way FDR does. I mean, there are lots of Americans, particularly in the Republican Party, who seem to think that FDR was the cause of all the evils of modern America and that the New Deal was just the importation of socialism and communism and that you know it led to a huge government and the man tried to destroy the American constitution and undermined uh, what the founding fathers had actually laid down. I mean you and I may not believe this but there are lots and lots of Americans who do so again he's a bit like Thatcher it looks as if you know, lots of people are very, very supportive of him and would see him as a, an icon, but he is a divisive historical figure. And just as uh, myself and others would say, yes, there's a case for making Mrs. Thatcher a national icon, uh, and Gordon Brown has arranged to give her a state funeral, God bless her. Um, FDR, well, of course he was this monumental leader during the war, but again, all the latest historiography suggests that, you know, the New Deal was not really a success uh, economically during the 1930s, that his foreign policy in the 1930s of, of appeasing Hitler was uh, left a lot to be desired, his isol- you know, his neutrality policy. And again, even some progressive aspects of history, that he did nothing for blacks in America. I mean, he refused even to sign an anti-lynching bill. He regarded himself as an honorary Georgian because he had a home in Georgia. Uh, and so in order to get his New Deal passed uh, and to stop the isolationists in Congress overwhelming him, he needed the support of Dixiecrat Democrats and uh, he would do nothing to disturb that. So his record isn't as brilliant. Uh, as one may think. Uh, but yes, he did help win the Second World War. <laughs> but for most people, for, not for most, for lots of America, he, he, he's a failure, he's a lefty, uh, he's responsible for big government in America, for the welfare state in America. And if Obama is considered by Romney and others as not really american but someone who wants to bring european welfare values into america well what do you think they make of fdr so but
0: we, we this is better be the last batch because we're nearly up times nearly up but there are some people who've been waiting a long time over this side so first of all the lady here and then the gentleman there yeah. we can make the can you make the questions quite quick and to the point please yeah. and then this will be the last batch yeah
4: Thank you very much. Actually, you put a lot of uh, historians on notice by sort of uh, suggesting that they go and approach uh, history in a more forensic uh, way. I
1: I, I can't hear you. I do. Speak a little bit louder.
4: Right. Shall I repeat? Or was it? Yes. Yes, repeat. Right. Thank you very much. I'm uh, thinking that you've put many historians on notice uh, so that they approach uh, the way they um, see history and examine history in a more forensic uh, light, and that's wonderful for all of us, I think. Now, if we could sort of fast forward to our modern time and um, preempt history being written for us to read at a later stage, if you were to have a chance to speak to, say, Obama, what would you advise him on Iran at the moment? <laughs> okay, while, while you're thinking about that one, uh, <laughs>
2: question now <laughs> yes. um, just to go back to what you said about the, the poll of the greatest Russians earlier as I recall um, when it was narrowed down to 10 Stalin was heading for a runaway victory, the TV channel got rather embarrassed, they then decided they weren't going to do uh, a classification, and they would give the top three in no particular order. Then they fudged the figures, and Stalin was just announced with two other people in the top three, and his, his vote had been cut by a few million just to make it look bad. So, not quite as cheery as maybe you thought.
1: No, we'll uh-huh. okay, it was. I'm, I'm glad a... democracy is flourishing in Russia. You want, to... <laughs> <laughs> you want to comment on Stalin
0: and on Iran? Uh, well, I, uh, yeah. well, have, what should Obama do to make himself a national icon?
1: Oh, I, I just carry on as he is. But the, um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, the only sensible advice he can give to Iran is, A, bring in parli- real parliamentary democracy, stop fixing elections. Uh, I would say, you no, know, please get rid of your theocracy and have a democracy, and please stop trying to build nuclear bombs. So, uh, I'm sure he's saying all these things to them anyway. It's just that they're not listening. Sorry? Would you be prepared to go to war? I mean, Otherwise. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't want to end this lecture as a warmonger. <laughs> uh, I would tell him that the, he, to um, take whatever steps are necessary uh, to preserve the best interests of the West.
0: I think on that statesmanlike note um, we we, we really ought to bring this to a close but obviously we could have kept on longer so that just testifies to the interest that your lecture has raised Alan and um, thank you very much for raising some fundamental issues about nationalism and about memory and things that we can all take away home with us and to ponder furthermore thank you very much indeed